Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the privilege and the opportunity to hear from you. And Lord, we confess that we are a people who are always running a mile a minute, trying to do seven things at once, often doing seven things poorly. And uh, there are a lot of things clamoring for our attention right now. Lord, I, I imagine looking out over the congregation today, there are arguments that have been had, um, work stresses, political stresses, relational stresses, things that uh, we want to try and solve right now with our anxiety and our worry, uh, when we can't solve a, a single thing with our anxiety and our worry. And the enemy would love for us to spend the next 40 minutes sitting and stewing and stressing. But you would love for us to be still and know that you're God. And you would invite us to come and to hear, and you promise us that your word never returns void. And Jesus, you tell us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And uh, we need to hear from you. Oh, we need to hear from you. So I, I invite you to speak today. Uh, God, I pray that you would give me uh, your words. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to respond. And uh, we can't do any of this in our strength. We can't muster it up. So we need it from you. And so we're asking that you would give us this gift. We pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Would you look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4? And uh, that's pretty close to the end of your New Testament. If you turn in there in your Bibles, some, some of you maybe you're jumping in midstream. We're working our way through Paul's letter to Timothy, his first letter, which is why it's called First Timothy. Uh, and as we do that, I can't bring you the whole, uh, I can't bring you up to speed all the way, but maybe one phrase that might give you an on-ramp uh, is this phrase that you've probably heard before, and it's that an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. Have you heard that? It's true. An ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. My dentist tells me this, and yet I will not floss, but she's right, and I know she's right. Your doctor probably tells you this. An ounce of prevention. It's true in the world. It's also true in the church. It's true in Ephesus. So Timothy's coming into this church in Ephesus, and th there's a mess. Uh, it's just a mess. We've been talking about this week after week. It's a mess because the elders in Ephesus who had been appointed by the Lord to shepherd this flock and care for the flock had not put forward that ounce of prevention. And so Timothy now has the difficult task of applying a pound of cure. He's working through that. It's true in Ephesus. It's also true in the church today. The reality is that there are all kinds of messes around us that, that exist because someone forgot or chose not to apply that ounce of prevention. And we do this. And we've seen this. You know, perhaps you, you know of a marriage, and everybody knew the marriage was in trouble, but but everyone was afraid to, to have that one hard talk, right, just to, to identify the problem. And instead, the whole community was, was affected by a messy divorce, right? That happens. Or maybe it's that community in the congregation, this little sect of grumblers. And everybody knew that that, that little grumbling community existed, but nobody ever called them out. And eventually, it grew and split a whole church. You know, there are people living in our city who have lived through these disasters who are now fallen away from the faith, who are now hostile to the gospel, it's going to take a pound of cure to rebuild the bridges that have been burned. And it could have been avoided with an ounce of prevention. So the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, and here in our passage for this morning, he's, he's carrying on from what we discussed two weeks ago at the end of chapter 3. He reminded them of, of what the church is supposed to be. Remember, he said, you're the household of God, which is to say, you're, the, you're a family, 
there should be that familial love binding you together. He says, you're the church of the living God, which is to remind them that the holy, majestic God dwells in your midst. So you can't tolerate that kind of stuff. You've got to speak to it lovingly and root it out. He says, you're a pillar and a buttress of the truth, which means that you exist to, to lift high and to defend the truth of the gospel. Paul says, this is who you are. And the stakes couldn't be higher. When we lose sight of our mission, we remember lost people go to hell when the church loses sight of her mission. When we take our eyes off of what we're supposed to be locking our eyes on, the, the consequences are severe. And in these verses, the Apostle Paul applies that to a particular attack that was being levied in Ephesus. A particular problem that they were facing. And the particular problem is this. There were false teachers in the church, and they were teaching all kinds of distorted things, and he addressed some of those earlier in the letter, but here he hones in on two lies that they were perpetuating. They were teaching that, that to be a real Christian, to be a true Christian, you couldn't get married. And they were teaching that to be a real Christian, a true Christian, you couldn't eat certain foods. This was a, a form of asceticism, or maybe a, a more familiar term. It's a form of legalism. You've heard that term? Legalism is, is to say that you're not really saved by the gospel. You're saved by effort. You're saved by being better than everyone else. You're saved by following our strict rules. And that's what these teachers in Ephesus were teaching. This is the attack that was being levied against the gospel. And the elders had neglected it. They hadn't addressed it. And therefore, there was a real mess in Ephesus. So Paul is writing now to Timothy, young Timothy, and Paul is helping him to process what has happened in this city. But more than that, he's equipping him with wisdom to protect the people of God moving forward into the future. And so as we look at Paul addressing this particular problem, we are going to find principles that will help us moving forward to protect the people of God. Look now with me to God's Word. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant living and active word to us. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So legalism is one of the devil's favorite weapons, and I regret to inform you that he still wields it against the church. It's an effective weapon. It, it ropes us in. And here, before we go any further, I want to make sure we see the urgency of this passage. Sometimes we can fly by these things and, and miss the... Oh, well, let's look again at verse 1. I want to make sure you see this. It says, the, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. It's a sobering verse, isn't it? Some will depart. I look around the room this morning. I think about our kids that are, are learning in Redeemer Kids. You know, some of us have been affected by this. I can 
I can think of five faces right now who I grew up with. Some of them, I was baptized with one of them on the same day. People that I was, I was sure they were with me. I was sure that we were in it for the long haul. And I was devastated as I watched them depart from the faith. Paul says some, some will depart. And he's pulling Timothy in. He's helping him to process what's happened. And he's helping him to make a plan moving forward. To prepare him to protect the people of God. I don't know about you, but I want to lean in. I want to listen close. I want to weep as I think about this. The fact that some will depart. I want to see every one of you, every single man and woman and boy and girl here at Redeemer make it to the finish line. So we need to listen. So Paul is here giving us some principles. Let's, let's lean in and listen close because an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Principles for protecting the people of God. The first one is this. If we would protect the people of God, then we need to recognize that false teachers will come. It's not a question of if false teachers will come. Paul says, it's a question of when. That's what he says in verse 1. Look again. He says, the, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. See, the elders in Ephesus had let their guard down and the church was suffering the consequences. And Paul is saying here in this letter, as he writes to Timothy, he's saying, are, what, are you shocked by this? Are you surprised by this? You shouldn't be. You shouldn't be, because the Holy Spirit told us that this was going to happen. So, for example, the Holy Spirit told us through Jesus in Matthew 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Jesus said, see, I have told you beforehand. Which is to say, so don't be surprised. You know this. Now, the Holy Spirit also spoke through the Apostle Paul. And he spoke to these elders in Ephesus. And this was before the whole mess took place. The Holy Spirit spoke through Paul, and we find it in Acts 20. Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, he said. The elders in Ephesus had zero excuse for being caught off guard. Can I tell you something, brothers and sisters? We have zero excuse for being caught off guard. And I would say this. We are more susceptible to this threat than anyone else in the history of the world. And you'd say, Pastor, you always use that exaggeration. I'm not exaggerating. We are more susceptible to this. This threat is more real for us and for the people we're mentoring and our friends and our children than anyone else in the history of the world. People who want to derail your faith. Teachers who want to weaponize and militarize our young men. Prophets who want to monetize that new believer that you're mentoring have greater access to us than they ever have before. It's hard to guard against the wolves when the whole congregation is potentially carrying one of those wolves in their pocket. But it's true. Through the internet, through YouTube, through sermon audio, through the podcast, we've got teachers coming at us from every angle. And so I'm going to put forward a real practical suggestion that's not going to make me very popular, but I'm just going to say it. Elders of Redeemer, we need to make it a habit of asking the people on our care list who they're listening to and what they're reading. We have to add that to our vocabulary. 
just checking in and, and seeing how folks are doing. People of Redeemer, because we're going to fall short at times, we need, we need to develop a habit as a people to reach out to our elders and to say, hey, I want you to know, I spend about five hours a week listening to this particular teacher. Do you think that's helpful for me or not? Many times I'm sure it is, and we'll be, we'll be clapping and saying, that's fantastic. Give, give it six hours. But perhaps it's not. And we need to have those talks. And by the way, as I say it, I imagine you're sitting there thinking, this is the most backwards, controlling, countercultural idea I've ever heard. I hear that. But I don't particularly care because I also hear this from God's word in Acts chapter 20. Paul speaks to the elders of the church in Ephesus, and here's what he says to them. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I have not been a pastor for long. And already I've seen families, families that I was supposed to shepherd, called to shepherd, and I've watched as they've walked away from the faith because they were listening to teachers that I'd never met before, listening to teachers that they'd never met before. And according to Acts chapter 20, I'm going to give an account to the Lord. What am I going to say on that day when I stand before Jesus? And he says, you know, the Holy Spirit made you an overseer for those folks. And I obtained them with my own blood. What happened? What am I going to say? And as I look at Jesus, Jesus, I didn't know. Jesus, it, it would have been too awkward for me to ask. Well, I'm asking now. And we need to cultivate a culture where we ask. Because false teachers will come. It's all over Scripture. It, it wreaked havoc in the city of Ephesus. Well, I don't want to see the same thing happen here. So as awkward as that talk might be, this talk is going to be far more awkward. So let's have this talk. We've got to be on guard. Recognize that they will come and conduct ourselves accordingly. That's the first thing we learn. We want to protect the people of God. The second principle is this. We need to understand that the devil is the true enemy of the church. Once again, let's read verse 1. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. It's very spiritual language, isn't it? You know, sometimes I wonder if we aren't more shaped by our secular humanistic culture than, than we realize you know, we walk into the world each day, and there's a spiritual fight that's taking place. And sometimes I think we can be naive to that. Or at least we live as if we're naive to that. The true enemy of the church is not the false teacher. The true enemy of the church is not the culture. The true enemy of the church is not Islam. The true enemy of the church is not the government. These are all weapons, one among many, that the enemy might wield from time to time to swing at the church, but the true enemy of the church is not the weapon that is wielded. The true enemy is the, is the enemy that wields the weapon. It's the devil. And if we get this wrong, we can do some really, really unhelpful things. You say, well, what would that look like? If we believe that the true enemy of the church is the false teacher, that it's the person, then we'll mock that person. We'll insult that person. Or worse, We'll burn the heretic. We'll drown the witch. Thankfully, the church has never made that mistake. If we believe that the true enemy of the church is the culture, then we'll just hide. We'll just hide. 
We'll make a little micro-community of heaven apart from the rest of the world. We'll reject all their technology. We'll reject all communication with them. And we'll build our little piece of paradise while the rest of the world goes to hell. But of course, the church would never make a mistake like that. Or if we believe that the true enemy of the church is Islam, well, then we'll be tempted to fight our way to glory. We'll respond to violence with violence. We'll wage war in the name of the Prince of Peace. We'll stain the sand of the Holy Land with the blood of men and women who were created in the image of God, all in the name of the Gospel. But of course, we would never make that mistake. And if we believe that the state is the enemy, well, you get the picture. If we want to protect the people of God, then we need to open our eyes and aim at the right enemy. When Paul first wrote to the church in Ephesus, he reminded them of this, something which they obviously forgot. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. By the way, to clarify, the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers and the spiritual forces are all demonic references. Paul is saying, we are in a spiritual fight, brothers and sisters. People are not the enemy. Let me just say that again. People are not the enemy. The devil is the enemy. Therefore, we don't mock and insult false teachers. Now, we correct them in love because we want them to be saved. We engage. But all of this we do, we do in a prayerful manner. We're prayerful because we recognize this is a spiritual conversation. We don't hide from the culture. We go into the culture as salt and light, and we do so bathed in prayer because Jesus came to save sinners. We don't hate Muslims. We love them. We share the gospel with them because we want them to see that Jesus is not just another prophet. He's the Son of God and the King of Kings, and He loves them, and He purchased them with His blood. And as we share the gospel, we pray. And we don't mock or overthrow the government. We show them honor as God's Word clearly and unambiguously commands. And we exercise our political rights that we've been given. We do so peacefully and respectfully, but in all of that, we place our real trust in the prayer that is behind it and over it and and beyond it. Because we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. If we want to be a church that protects the people of God, then we need to be a church that fights on our knees. We need to understand that the devil is the true enemy of the church. Third, if we want to be a church that protects the people of God, we need to resist every temptation to compromise. The false teachers in Ephesus were deceived because they had gone against their consciences. We saw this at the end of chapter 2 with Hymenaeus and Alexander, and we'll see it again in this text. He says, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. John Stott describes the progression this way. I think this is a helpful just way to picture what's happened here in Ephesus. He says, First, they turned a deaf ear to their conscience until it became cauterized. Next, they felt no scruples in becoming hypocritical liars. Thirdly, they thus exposed themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Finally, they led their listeners to abandon the faith. 
So what we see here is that these folks had neglected their conscience, and when you neglect your conscience, you make yourself vulnerable to false teachers who will give you a lie so that you can continue living the life that you want to live. And if you remember when we dealt with this back in chapter 2, we used the analogy of a lane assist alarm, which, by the way, I think I stole from Pastor Paul. Conscience is like a lane assist alarm. Anybody have that in their car? I probably never will. I'm always driving an outdated van of some sort. But if you've got a nice car, you've got this lane assist alarm. And, of course, it goes off whenever you're veering out of your lane into danger. It's a helpful tool to have in your car. Well, the conscience is like your personal lane assist alarm. And when you step outside of the lines of what is right, that alarm begins to blare. And these false teachers in Ephesus had been outside of the line of holiness, and the the alarm was blaring, but then they bought a lie that would allow them to turn off the alarm. I like John Stott's language. They cauterized their conscience, right? It's like you can imagine them taping a pillow over the alarm system. And then when they realized that, hey, this kind of works, they brought people into their lie, and it perpetuated through the city. When you ignore your conscience, when you choose to persist in sin, even though everything inside of you is telling you that it's wrong, you put yourself in a terribly dangerous place. When you ignore the alarm in your heart, eventually you're going to become desperate for false teachers who will give you permission to turn the alarm off. And the devil, who is our true enemy, which we just saw, the devil wants to bring you down. And so he will gladly send those teachers your way. And as we saw before, he has greater access to you with these teachers than he's ever had before. So he'll send them your way, bringing the teaching of demons, which is what Paul says in this. It's not just like bad teaching. It's the teaching of demons to convince you to distrust and disobey the word of God. That's the playbook. It's subtle, but it's so dangerous. and It's effective. So here's a question. Are there any alarms in your life that you are presently trying to drown out. It could be a show that you shouldn't be watching. It could be a habit you've been indulging in. It could be a, a bitterness, an unforgiveness that you refuse to let go of. Is that alarm bothering you? Good. It's supposed to bother you. Can I tell you that? It's supposed to bother you. Because you know who installed that alarm in your heart? Your Heavenly Father, who loves you and who knows what's best for you. So your goal should not be to find a way to silence the alarm, to tape a pillow on top, to find a teacher who will help you to read your Bible so that you can ignore this. No, the goal should be to listen, 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 and obey. If we want to protect the people of God, we need to resist every urge to compromise. Boy, it's dangerous when any of us do this. It's particularly dangerous when when the elders, when the teachers begin to do this. And that's what we saw happen in Ephesus. Because then they start sharing the lie with everyone and it, it breaks through the whole church. We need to tremble at the word of God and to teach one another to do likewise. Because, fourth, if we want to protect the people of God, we need to become diligent students of God's word. So at this point, we're going to start leaning into the particular problem, the particular attack that was being levied in Ephesus by the false teachers. So let's look at verse 3. These are teachers who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So as I mentioned off the top, 
the particular attack, at least part of it, that was being faced in Ephesus was these false teachers who were saying that you, you can't marry and you can't eat certain foods if you want to be a true Christian, if you want to be a holy Christian. And lest we be tempted to dismiss these as entirely irrelevant issues, you know, relegated to, to first century Ephesus, let's remember that the Catholic Church still forbids marriage for its clergy. Let's remember that people have left this congregation because they wanted to follow the Mosaic dietary restrictions. This is a live issue. Therefore, we need to prepare ourselves to answer these kinds of objections. And of course, there's, there's thousands of objections like this. But we need to prepare ourselves. We need to defend against these attacks against the gospel. Because the church is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. But how do we prepare? Pastor, what do I do? Maybe you're asking that question. Well, the answer is simple, really. Read your Bible. Read it every day. Adopt a reading plan so that you read it cover to cover, and then you read it again. Because the more familiar you become with God's truth, the easier it will be to sniff out a lie. And, lovingly, not only can you sniff out the lie for yourself, but the easier it will be for you to shield and shepherd those that you love and care about from the lies that are levied their way. Oh, that Redeemer would be a a congregation filled with people who who know the truth so well that they're able to shut down the lies as they arise, like whack-a-mole. And it is like whack-a-mole, let's be honest. They just keep coming. They keep coming. But there's nothing new, nothing new under the sun. And if we know the truth, then each one of us has got a mallet, and we're just whacking the mole down. So, for example, let's consider these, particular, these little moles that pop up. I didn't write the whack-a-mole analogy, and I regret it already. Um, and I'm going to stop doing this. Let's consider these lies that are being faced in Ephesus. Lie one. God forbids marriage. How would you answer that? Before I give you the answer, just I want you to think. Do you read your Bible enough that if someone were to come to you today and say, hey, if you were a real Christian, you'd never get married. How would you answer that? Well, I would encourage you to go right back to the very beginning. Turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 2, where we read this. This is God saying, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. What do we learn here? We learn here that marriage can't be a sin because God instituted it. Marriage is God's idea. And then, if you wanted, you could flip ahead all the way to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul reminds us that that not everyone gets married, that that some people are actually called to a life of singleness, and that God gives them a gift to be able to live a single life. They're a tremendous gift to the church. Single people are a tremendous gift to the church. But he goes on to say in chapter 7 that most of us don't have that gift. And if you don't have that gift, boy, you should get married. You should get married. It's good. It's a good gift from God. See, Now, lie one is a pretty easy lie. Right, so that's, we've answered that one. Let's turn our attention now to the second lie, which is a little bit more difficult. Lie two. Some foods are unclean and should not be eaten. Again, this one's a bit trickier because they might even turn in their Bible to Leviticus 11 and start reading to you from the dietary laws of the Mosaic Covenant. That gets a bit trickier, right? They say, look, it's in the Bible. So how would you respond to that person? Once again, the answer to this question is 
hiding right in plain sight on the pages of our Bible. And so if we're reading it consistently, these answers are going to be in our mind. We'll know where to look. So we would look for, to begin in Mark 7, where Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and is expelled? And then Mark's just making sure, in case we missed it, he leans in and says, Thus he declared all foods clean. So you could start there. By the way, you could end there, couldn't you? But let's go on a little bit further. Let's turn to the Acts chapter 10. And in Acts chapter 10, we find Peter, a devout Jewish man, a man who's been following the Mosaic dietary restrictions for his whole life, and he has a dream. And in this dream, he sees a blanket opening up from heaven, and on the blanket are pigs and all these animals that are listed in, uh, are listed in the Mosaic dietary restrictions as unclean. But he sees them coming down on this blanket, and then God says to him, Peter, take and eat. And he replies, oh, Lord, far be it from me. These animals are unclean. But then God says to him in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. See that? Or you could turn to Romans chapter 14, or Colossians chapter 2, where Paul talks about some people struggle with their conscience in eating these these foods that are deemed unclean, but those folks have a weak conscience that we, we are permitted to eat these foods. But here's what I want you to hear. There's an answer. There's an answer to the first lie. There's an answer to the second lie. And there's an answer to the 999th lie. And sometimes it can feel a little bit overwhelming. I feel that pastorally. A bit overwhelming because it feels like whack-a-mole. They're always popping up. But listen, you don't need to become an expert in every branch of foolishness that the devil dreams up. There aren't enough hours in the day. What do you do then? Well, you do need to pick up your Bible. Pick it up every day. And read it. And read it cover to cover, and then read it again. If you want to be used by the Lord to protect your friends, or the people that you're mentoring, or your kids, or your grandkids, then you need to get God's God's Word and God's truth into you. We need to become diligent students of the Word of God. Finally, and we'll close with this point. If we want to protect the people of God, we need to delight in God's good world. Look again at verses 4 to 5. It says, For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Paul says this particular lie It wouldn't stand up if if you'd spend more time delighting in God's good creation. God made it. Enjoy it. And I'll tell you, you maybe you felt a bit of conviction with some of the things we've touched on. I feel convicted here. This is an enormous blind spot in my life, so much so that I wrote the first sermon and I didn't even mention it. And I went to the preaching workshop and uh, Ryan Chevalier, who works with our youth, we're going through and looking for some feedback and Ryan's usually pretty quiet, so when he raises his hand, you lean in and listen. And he says, it's curious to me that you didn't touch on the, the goodness of God's creation at all. It's interesting to me that you, you found all of the negative stuff. You know, the false teachers are going to come and read your Bible more and the devil's the enemy. He's like, but you didn't, you didn't see that last piece, that God's given us a, a good world to enjoy. 
that's part of the medicine too. And I felt really convicted, because I'll be honest with you, that is a, a huge blind spot in my life and something I've been praying about all week long. One of the ways that God protects us is that he invites us to delight in him, to delight in what he has given us. The Christian life is hard. Can we, I don't know if you're feeling that. Christian life is hard, but can I tell you something else? It's also so, so good. It's good. God made a beautiful world for us to enjoy. He made it for his glory, but he also made it for our enjoyment. John Piper has this quote. It's his life-defining quote. You ought to memorize it. It is that good. Piper says, God is most glorified in us. When? When we are most satisfied in him. Meaning, Christianity is not about a list of rules to be obeyed. It's about a holy, glorious God to be praised. Christianity is not about the abandonment of happiness. It's about finding joy unspeakable and full of glory. Christianity is not about despising and rejecting God's good creation. It's about enjoying God's good creation in a way that brings Him glory. And He is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in Him. So we turn to these particular lies. How do you answer those lies? Yeah, you read your Bible. You do. You read your Bible. How else do you answer these lies? Boy, you enjoy your spouse. Your spouse is a gift from God, and you should enjoy that good gift. See, God gave us the song of songs because marriage is beautiful, and romance is beautiful, and it's a gift from God, and he means for us to enjoy it. So let's not be prudes. Let the heretics have the monopoly on being prudes. But that's not what we're called to as Christians. We're called to delight, to enjoy, to revel in the gift that God has given us. And he... He's glorified in us when we delight in our marriages. And be practical, again, lie too. That pork sandwich is a gift from God. And if your conscience allows it, you should enjoy that gift. I mentioned Romans 14, Colossians 2. Some folks still struggle in their conscience. You can imagine growing up as, as a Jewish person for your whole life, and your conscience might, it might take you a while to be able to see that pork sandwich is a gift. It says you should listen to your conscience. But listen, it's a gift from God. He made your tongue with taste buds. Why did he do that? Why does food taste good? It doesn't need to taste good. It could taste like paper, right? It's just, we would eat it anyways because we want to live. But God in his kindness, he gave us taste buds. He made the food taste good. So give thanks before your meal. Praise God around the table for the provision that has come to you from him. And then take and eat Glorify him by enjoying his provision. See, I want my kids to see in my life, in the way that I live, that we serve a good God. And I confess publicly that I don't always nail that. In fact, most of the time I don't nail that. And perhaps some of us struggle in this way. And we make it seem like living for the Lord is, a, is to sentence yourself to a miserly existence. Misery and sorrow and... There are seasons of this, to be sure. But God is good. And he's given us good gifts. I want to worship with my family as I walk with them through the woods. I want my kids to remember seeing dad looking out the window in May when the apple blossoms are in bloom and just seeing me marvel at the beauty that God put in my own backyard. 
I want them to marvel at the kindness of God when they think about dad laughing with mom in the kitchen. I want that for them. And I know that those things will protect them moving forward. Because God made these things for our enjoyment. As we do that, as we delight in God's good creation and give thanks to him for it, we protect the people of God. See, the joy of the Lord makes legalism look like lunacy. This morning, I want to challenge each one of us to think through the the principles we've considered. I want to challenge you to consider what it would look like to, to apply an ounce of prevention in these areas. Let's think about the first one. Have you been living with your guard down to false teachers? Have you been indiscriminate in the things that you listen to, the things that you watch, and just soaking it all in recklessly? What would it look like for you to add just a little bit of discernment and caution to your life? Just a bit. Just sharing with somebody what you're listening to. Maybe inviting a little bit of accountability into your life. Or have you forgotten who the enemy is? What would it look like for you to shift a little bit of that attention that you've been placing on people and structures and institutions and shifting a good chunk of that focus instead to to prayer? Focused, consecrated prayer. Maybe you need to make a schedule in your life, a prayer plan, or again, invite a bit of accountability into your life. Find a prayer partner. Or how about the third one? Have you been ignoring your conscience? Maybe today is the day that you choose to let go of something that you've been holding on to for a long time. Maybe today is the day that that alarm that you've been trying to ignore for years, today is the day when you finally say, God, I hear you, and you shift the lane, you shift your car back into the lane. Again, what would it look like to make that happen? Look like humbling yourself, confessing your sin to the Lord. Again, inviting a bit of accountability, finding a brother or sister in Christ and sharing with them what's been happening and, and, and what you're resolving towards and inviting them to speak into your life? Or what about the fourth one? Are, are you stunted in your Bible reading? Maybe you know. like I, I know that I should be reading my Bible. I know that I want to read my Bible, but I'm in a rut. Okay. Well, what would it look like to grow in that area by one degree? Maybe you could ask someone what their daily Bible reading looks like. Get a little bit of motivation, a bit of inspiration. Maybe you could just confess to somebody the three excuses that you use all the time. Just put them out on the table, and guess what? There's a solution to each one of those excuses. Somebody could help you find it. Get the word into you. Or fifth, have you forgotten to delight in God's good world? Well, perhaps the most worshipful thing you could do this afternoon would be to go for a walk in the woods. Maybe you could carve out just a little extra time in your schedule to slow down, and to be grateful. Maybe you could cultivate some habits of enjoying your spouse, or slowing down at the dinner table, and instead of reciting off the memorized prayer that you recite every night, maybe you just stop and you actually thank God for each thing. Man, I thank you for this turkey, and I thank you for this gravy, and I thank you for this table and the people at it, and the roof over our heads. What a gift it all is. Little steps. Little changes, listening, discerning, obeying. An ounce of prevention. It's better than a pound of cure. This is how we protect the people of God, and this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, once again, we acknowledge our propensity to rush, and, uh, and we're going to feel that temptation even now, uh, to rush out of this place, to rush into all of our plans, to forget what we've heard, to forget what your Spirit has pressed into our hearts. And so, God, I just want to ask for protection. I pray that you would take little seeds that have been planted, maybe, Lord, some resolve that has sprung up in someone's heart today. Lord, I pray that you would guard that. Lord, I think of those little bags that my neighbors put over their shrubs over the winter to keep them from dying. Uh, Lord, we're about to go into the winter again, and uh, there's little things that maybe are beginning to grow right now. Lord, I pray that you would just protect them, that there would be real growth, that we would see real change. And Lord, just going back to the, where we began, uh, I pray that you would guard us from legalism. Lord, we're growing in the, these areas not so that you would love us more. We're growing in these areas because we love you. We're growing in these areas because you couldn't love us any more than you already do. You sent your son to die for us that we could be forgiven and free. And Lord, we live for you. And we don't always live for you perfectly. But Lord, our desire is to grow from one degree of glory to the next. So Lord, would you help us? And I pray, help us. Lord, we are a community of faith, the family of God, a church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Lord, help us to live together for your glory. So Lord, you know what we need. Lord, you know the sermon that you've preached into each and every heart. And Lord, I thank you for it. It's better than any sermon I could ever preach. So Holy Spirit, continue to work in us. Create space, even today, create space for us to be still, for us to reflect, for us to surrender to you and to look to you and to delight in you. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?